We turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read the first 18 verses. Let us bow in prayer before reading. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we quiet our hearts and humble ourselves before you. This minister is a sinful man in need of sovereign free grace. He only is an instrument. May Christ himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, expound this text and enter it into our hearts and lives. Open the hearts of all who are here to submit to your sovereign word. And we pray that your people will be built up in the most holy faith and that lost people will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and to have complete and full assurance of salvation. We ask these things with humility and reverence in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For if it is possible for the blood of bulls and goats, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, 
there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, it's an old expression, one rarely heard nowadays, but it used to be upon the lips of ministers of the gospel with great frequency. The expression is, the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. A glorious expression. And the most fitting conclusion to the writer's proclamation of the cross of Christ in the book of Hebrews up to this point is that expression, the finished work of Christ. For the writer singles out the once-for-allness of Christ's self-offering. He wants us to see that there is one full, final atonement for sins. And he does this over against the inadequacy of the old sacrificial system that was designed by God to point forward and to be temporary until Christ himself came as fulfiller. So here is the first thing we see in the text. The inadequacy of the old sacrificial system. We see this in the first ten verses. The inadequacy of that system is seen in several ways in this text. First of all, the old sacrificial system was inadequate because of repetition. You notice here in chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. There was constant ongoing repetition. Now, this repetition showed some essential truths. The repetition in the Levitical sacrificial system showed, first of all, that sin had raised a barrier between God and ourselves and that we cannot remove that barrier. The old sacrificial system showed that that barrier could only be removed by the necessity of a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Still... It was but an outline of the truth. No animal sacrifice could redeem the sinner. The Day of Atonement happened yearly, annually, once per year. The repetition demonstrates the inadequacy of it all. Thousands of lambs that were sacrificed could not satisfy for sins. Thousands of scapegoats that were let free in the wilderness could not take away from the people of God their sins It could only point to the one who would come and would achieve and accomplish that. But the inadequacy of the old sacrificial system in this text is also demonstrated because it could not really, truly remove the guilt of sin. And so in chapter 10, verse 2, there is this rhetorical question. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? In other words, the sacrifice continued because there was a continual consciousness of sin. Guilt could not be removed by these sacrifices. Needed, therefore, a sacrifice that is fully and finally efficacious that really can remove our sins. The old system could provide no assurance of faith. Additional sin called for additional sacrifice year after year after year. On and on and on and on, the sacrificial system simply pointed to the truth and reality that there was needed a sacrifice that would come that could truly remove the guilt of our sin. 
And then the inadequacy of the old system was shown because it constantly reminded of the guilt of sin. In verses 3 and 4 we read, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The remembrance of sin and guilt and depravity year by year by year with no final relief, no removal of that guilt, could not bring permanent peace of conscience to the people of God. Only the blood of Christ can bring that peace to the conscience of God's people. There is no absolute wiping away of sin from the divine record through this sacrificial system, but only through Christ who would fulfill it. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain, but Christ is a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And then the inadequacy of the old system was shown by Scripture itself. You notice how he goes on in verse 5 and following. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he quotes from the psalm that we read this morning, the 40th. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In other words, the 40th Psalm teaches that to perform God's will to redeem requires the incarnation. A body you have prepared for me. If we are to be saved from our sins, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, must assume human nature. A perfect man free from all sin who could through the sacrifice of himself take away the sins of his people once for all. A completely, utterly devoted sacrifice, full, perfect, and sufficient oblation for our sins. As we read in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What is needed? The incarnation of the Son of God. That God come down to redeem us. What is needed? That that devoted sacrifice go to Calvary and bear the wrath of God in the place of sinners like you and me. The Old Testament system simply pointed to the truth and reality of that final and sufficient sacrifice. And then the inadequacy of the old system is shown because Christ has replaced the old with the new, which was God's plan all along. Beginning in the second portion of verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so he takes away the first in the sacrifice of himself, abolishes the old, fulfills the types, establishes the second final order that can really remove your sins and mine. And in verse 10, we are taught the once-for-all character of the atonement of Jesus. He brings the perfection that the Old Testament sacrifices could only point to. The perfect sacrifice demands the cessation of the imperfect. The old covenant is replaced by the new. Now this is the inadequacy of the old system. But before we actually move to the heart of the issue in the text, let's remember a couple of things. 
The old system was adequate to underscore for us real guilt and the necessity of sacrifice. Real guilt, people. Now, our culture denies and suppresses the idea of real guilt. We feel guilt because we've been taught to feel guilt. We need to learn how to get rid of guilt and to love ourselves. That's our culture. We suppress guilt. We dress it up. We call it by other names. We say it's a bad feeling. We try to get rid of it by therapy or religious observance. But no, the Bible teaches that God has holy wrath against sin, that it is not dealt with by those means, but only through the cross of Christ. And if it is not dealt with, we will perish in our sin and remain guilty before a holy God forever. That was taught by the old system. And it made ever more clear as time went on the necessity of the new, the need that we, each of us, that you have of a redeemer from your sins. How great is your Christian liberty also? Have you considered this? And had we time to look at the Westminster Confession on this, we would certainly do so. Because you have a greater liberty than did those Old Testament saints. Year after year, the Day of Atonement constantly involved in the sacrificial system. But you now have a final atonement. Your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. And no longer are you bound by that system. Now, those things are taught by the old. But let's move to the very heart of things by seeing, and this is the second thing in the text, let's see the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice, the efficacy of the atonement, the efficacy, the power, the accomplishment, the achievement of his atonement, according to Hebrews 10. He draws out the powerful significance of what he said all the way back in the first chapter, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now he draws out the implications of that truth and reality. Because the saving performance of Christ our priest is not simply pro forma. It's not empty authority. But it is a salvation that really saves, an atonement that really pardons, an oblation that truly removes guilt. And so the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ is shown according to this text, first of all, in that the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice is demonstrated in his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The high priest could not sanctify the people in the Old Testament administration offering many times the same sacrifices. Needed? a sacrifice that would take away sin forever. The Old Testament priest stands. Our great high priest sits. Standing indicates that the sacrifice is not finished, that Christ has not yet come. Sitting indicates that the work of atonement is done, finished, complete, Once for all, never to be repeated, a single sacrifice 
of consummate and absolute worth and value, guilt is dealt with with finality through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Sacrifice complete and acceptance with God, our sins are pardoned through Jesus' blood. Do you know that Jesus could not enter heaven until he paid in full the redemption price for his people? It is done, or else he could not have ascended on high. And that means that there is no stitch in the righteous garment that you receive by faith when you trust in Christ. No stitch of which is added by you, but it is all achieved through Christ. His exaltation shows the efficacy of his sacrifice. But then the writer also says the efficacy of the atonement is shown because it is sufficient for all time. Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Why can Jesus sit at the Father's right hand? I will tell you. Jesus can sit at the Father's right hand because he was successful. And there are three effects of this successful achievement of Christ on the cross. He cleanses believers' conscience from guilt. He fits us to approach God acceptably. And he brings us into perfect relation to our God in the new covenant. And he does that, verse 14 tells us, for all time. For all time. That means for you and for me, therefore, people of God, that once having trusted in Christ for the redemption of your sins, there will never be some sort of double jeopardy. It is not true that Christ sacrificed himself, and for those for whom he died who have put their trust in him, the time will come in which they will owe the debt again. No, the debt was paid and paid in full. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity cannot erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. The condemnation was real, but the justification is real because of the cross of Christ. In other words, this atonement is for all time. It is not an almost accomplishment, an almost atonement, or an almost redemption. I remember reading years ago about the 18th century preacher John Rippon. We sing many of the hymns in our hymn book come from Rippon's hymnal. Great, great divine. There was a young man in his congregation who was to go to, uh, to, the, to death because of some crime. And he was unable to work and, and to secure for him uh, a pardon for his crime. But Rippon learned the day before the time that the execution had originally been scheduled that the executioner had never seen a copy of the pardon. And so he rode all night, actually secured an audience with King George III in his bedchamber, secured the pardon from the king who said, ride, ride hard, And he did, and he arrived just in time to save his young church member from the hangman's noose. You know, he could have failed, humanly speaking. He could have arrived late. The pardon would have done him no good. That's not the atonement of Christ. 
It is not an atonement that could fail. It is not an atonement that would fail to achieve its purpose. It's not an atonement that will bring his people into double jeopardy. Jesus Christ, his salvation, is no almost salvation, but is a salvation for all time. The text also teaches us the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ is shown by the removal of our sins. Verses 15 through 17, look at it. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Citing Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant that would be established in the blood of Christ I will remember their sins no more. On the Day of Atonement, there was an annual remembrance of sins, repeated offerings. Christ's blood has power to carry out what those sacrifices could not, to establish the new covenant, give assurance that our sins are blotted out, the removal from God's record so that we are never, never, never brought under condemnation in God's court of law. God has no thought, imagine it, people of God, God has no thought ever to condemn a believer in Jesus Christ. You are justified and fully accepted in Him. Your sin is now erased irrevocably. Not some of your sin, not a little of your guilt, Not a few of your sins, not even most of your sins, but all of your sins were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and God remembers them against you no more. Complete acceptance and complete atonement. The stream of his blood is precious enough to cleanse from all sin. Now let me ask you to turn to the scriptures. Keep your finger here. Look with me at some Old Testament passages that point to this achievement of Jesus. Passages we all know but should remember. Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. How could Isaiah the prophet say this? But anticipating the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ... Isaiah 43, 25, God says to his people, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Chapter 44 of Isaiah, verse 22. God says on the basis of the Savior who would come, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah, the prophet, chapter 7, 
verses 18 and 19, God says to His people, on the basis of the Christ who would come, Micah 7, 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever, because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And there is someone here, and you have been dealing within your heart and conscience with a tremendous burden of sin and guilt. And you think that your sin and your guilt is more powerful than the blood of Christ. You think that your sin is somehow so unique that there is none who can pardon and none who can forgive. My friend, do you deny the sufficiency of the atonement of Jesus Christ? Do you deny His sacrifice on the cross and its full and complete value to atone for your sins? Show me, says John Owen the sinner, that can stretch his sins to the dimensions of God's grace. There is no sin that you have committed. There is no guilt in your heart or life that is unpardonable because the blood of Jesus Christ is efficacious to forgive sinners their sins. Believe Him. Trust Him. The efficacy of the sacrifice is shown by the removal of our sins. But also in this text, the efficacy is shown by the finality of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 18 of Hebrews 10, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is no sacrifice needed after the sacrifice of Jesus. Your works can form no sacrifice acceptable to God. Christ is not re-sacrificed when we celebrate the Supper of the Lord. There is one final, full, complete atonement in Jesus. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done, it's achieved, the complete work of of Jesus. Eternal redemption, unrestricted access to worship of the living God through no work of yours, but through his accomplishment who set upon the cross, it is finished. The veil is rent. Access to God has been paid for, and his atonement never fails. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised For our iniquities, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And so you say, Pastor, how can I be saved from my sin? How can I be saved from my guilt? The answer to that question is through no work of yours. Trust Christ who has completed the work. Trust Christ, the finished work of Christ alone can remove your sin and remove your guilt. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Come to Him. But someone says to me, 
But pastor, my will is so depraved, I'm so bound in sin. How can I come freely as you bid me? How can I come freely to him when I'm so bound in my sin? My friend, if you are beginning to see that, only the Holy Spirit shows proud sinners that our wills are bound in sin and that we cannot save ourselves. Oh, my friend, such is the finished work of Christ that he has even purchased faith for his people. He has not said to us, I purchase salvation for them, but I leave it to them to take it by faith. What faith? Tell me, what faith does a man dead in trespasses and sins possess? What faith can be produced by one who is dead in his trespasses and sins? Oh no, Christ has done it all on the cross, even purchasing for you and determining that he will give to his people the gift of faith with which to believe him. I do not believe in a cross that cannot save. Our friend Mr. Spurgeon, our friend through his works, our friend Mr. Spurgeon says, many divines say that Christ did something when he died. What that something is, they do not tell us. They believe in an atonement made for everybody, but then their atonement is just this. They believe that Judas was atoned for just as much as Peter. They believe that the damned in hell were as much an object of Jesus Christ's satisfaction as the saved in heaven. And though they do not say it in proper words, yet they must mean, must mean it, for it is a fair inference that in the cases of the multitudes Christ died in vain, for he died for them all, they say. And yet so ineffectual was his dying for them, that though he died for them, they are damned afterwards. No such atonement I despise, I reject it, and I'm right there with Spurgeon. I do not believe in a cross that cannot save. I do not believe in an atonement that did not accomplish its purpose. When Christ died for his people, he purchased for them salvation once for all, freely, completely, and utterly. Even the faith with which we come to him is the result of his purchase on the cross. Let me repeat to you an old and beautiful illustration that will encourage you in this. A man approaches a dungeon. The imprisoned one languishes in chains in this prison. The man proclaims to the prisoner, I have sufficient gold to free you if you will just free yourself from your chains and burst open the prison doors and come forth. Alas, the prisoner says, you can do nothing for me, for I cannot free myself so that your redemption money will do me good. You see, that is precisely the point. The gospel does not proclaim, free yourself, and then the blood of Jesus is available to you. It does not say, break down the prison doors, and then the blood of Christ can save you. It doesn't say, snap your own chains, and then you can, can avail yourself of what Christ did on the cross. That is not it at all. The gospel proclaims this, you poor, in-chain sinner... There you are, helpless, hopeless, and despised. The cross of Christ is the battering ram that will break down the prison walls. The cross of Christ can snap your chains in two. The cross of Jesus, his shed blood, can set you free. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. Yes, but even that faith is the fruit of the cross of Jesus Christ who shed his blood. Does not Isaiah tell us, I will give 
you, speaking of Christ, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out of the prisoners the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. He opens blind eyes. He sets prisoners free. He doesn't say to you, set yourself free and then avail yourself of the blood. He says to you, there you are, hopeless, helpless. Christ comes and sets you free. Well, that's the theme of our text this morning, and a glorious theme it is, and a glorious text it is. Again, it's something you rarely hear now. That old expression, the finished work of Christ. But I hope that you will hear it in your hearts this morning and over and over from the lips of your preachers. There is only one salvation for sinners, and that is the finished work of Christ. Cast aside your work. Cast aside your effort. They are of no avail for acceptance with God. Trust in Jesus alone for your freedom and salvation from sin. So there he sits, our great high priest. There he sits at the Father's right hand. He sits because his work is done. Once he expired on the cross in agony and sweat and blood, but now he sways a royal scepter and his enemies are being made a footstool under his feet. And he is applying his blood in sovereign mercy to his own. And God's people said, Amen.